The reading for today comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 7. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. If we want to grow, we don't abandon the gospel, we go deeper into the gospel. And so that's what I want to do this morning, is show us this. In the text that YN read for us this morning, we find an ancient creed of sorts. Uh, Most scholars uh, agree that this is one of the earliest sort of formulations or summaries of the Christian faith. Before there were texts to pass to people, they would pass along sayings like the one that we just read this morning, this early creed. And together, along with Corinth, we're being invited to go deeper into this creed for the sake of our growth. And so it has four parts. Four parts I want to unpack for us. The first is this. Christ's death. Second is Christ's burial. Third is Christ's resurrection. And then finally, Christ's appearing. Four parts. Four first importance components that we must see this morning. First, Christ's death. Look at verse 3 with me. Paul writes, and we read, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. If you've had the privilege, nay, honor, of babysitting my children, you know there are some things I'm going to tell you, my wife and I are going to tell you that are of first importance before we go, right? No sugar. (laughs) Don't do it. You'll pay for it. We'll pay for it. We all lose with sugar. Second, we'll say um, our two-year-old is essentially a, a puppy, a dog. If you leave the door open, he will run away. He'll just run away. And he'll be smiling the whole time, but he's gone. He's just gone. So that's, that's of first importance, right? right? Make sure they brush their teeth also uh, of first Im- importance. We don't, when, when babysitters come, and again, many of you know this because you're very kind and loving to us, we don't give like a detailed bio of each of our kids each time a babysitter comes. Okay, he, here's his likes and his dislikes. He, here's a bit of his history and where he's going. And this is what we think about him. And we don't do that. Why? Not that that's unimportant. It's just that there are things that are of first importance, of most importance, that we give preeminence to. Things that you have to remember for the next three hours, otherwise you're going to be hanging on for dear life. Now, I give this example to get ahead of something here. See, one author I read this week, Andrew Wilson, he has a commentary in 1 Corinthians, and he notes that every few years, Christians have this debate about how to define the gospel. Right? It happens on blogs, happens on podcasts, happens from pulpits. Christians debate about how to define the gospel. The first person says it's about Jesus' kingdom and, and, and Jesus being king of his kingdom, right? And repent of your sins and believe in him. And that's, that's true. Another person says, hold on a second, you mentioned nothing about social justice. There are horizontal elements to this gospel. 
And then a third person says, okay, you young people, you've actually forgot altogether uh, the coming back of Jesus, the return of Jesus. You have no eschatology. That's the gospel. See, what Paul is giving us this morning is not each and every aspect of the gospel. Not, not each and every implication of the gospel. If the gospel is a diamond, he's not showing us every side. Rather, he's giving us that which is of first importance. The bits about the gospel we must first clearly and coherently articulate. The gospel priorities. These priorities, Paul says, that were first articulated to him. And what, what is the first one? Paul says this. He says, the first gospel priority, the thing that we cannot miss, is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. It's important, really important, that we see that the one who died and was buried and was raised and who appeared is Christ. It's the Christ. Now, Christ, we should know, is not Jesus' last name. Rather, Christ, and there's a slide explaining this, comes from the Greek word for anointed, this word Christos, the title used to describe Jesus as set apart by God to be his good king over his people. He's the anointed one, the long-awaited one, the Messiah, we could say. Jesus is the long-awaited king, the one the prophets spoke of, the one who would emancipate God's people, who would save God's people. And to everyone's surprise, except perhaps those who were attentive to the Scriptures, Jesus is the Christ who brings this long-awaited rescue, not by the edge of the sword, not by implementing his regime, how, but through his death in our place for our sins. If you ever read the Gospel of Mark, it's fascinating. The first half of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus is king. And everybody says, yes. We're down with that. The Jewish people say, yes, we're down with that. And then around chapter 8, around like, literally like the middle of that gospel, it switches and it shows you how Jesus became king and how he is king and how he will save his people that he rules over. And surprise, surprise, it's through his death in our place for our sins. Remember, we never move past the gospel which means we never move beyond Christ's death for our sin. And so if you've been in the church for a while, I, I beg you this morning, hear this afresh. Christ died. So in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus asks his disciples, like, who do you say that I am? People are saying this, people are saying this, people are saying this. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Think about, let's hold that verse up there. Think about what Peter is saying in this moment. Peter believes that the person standing in front of him, like in front of him, he, he can touch Jesus, hold Jesus. Peter believes that the person standing in front of him is the same person who has eternally existed who spoke the ground they are standing upon into existence, who appeared before Abraham and Isaac and Moses. Peter believes that Jesus knew him when he was a single-celled zygote in his mother's uterus, 
Peter believes that Jesus is the Christ who at the end of the age will preside over all the nations as they are prostrate in worship. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Paul says, Christ died. The, the Christ is also Jesus. Jesus who exited Mary's womb resided in a far-off, forgotten town of Nazareth, learned his father's trade. Jesus, who grew tired and grew up, ate fish and laughed with friends. Jesus, who wept real tears over Jerusalem, bloody ones on the eve of his death. The scriptures tell us that Jesus, who is the Christ, was crucified. His body hung for all to see, blood pouring from his side and wrists. Though he had done no wrong, he is taken to the execution place for criminals, for the outcasts, on display. See, the cross was beside a main road that people would pass by. That's on purpose. People would see him and laugh at him. He's, he's killed and designed to be mocked. If this was the end of the story, Christ's death would be a tragedy. A tragedy. A hero with such promise, fallen from great heights to a tragic low. But as it is, the scriptures tell us again and again and again, and the Spirit reminds us this morning, Christ's death is no tragedy but a triumph, but a victory. And Paul tells us, Christ died What's that next clause? For our sins. Maybe you notice this refrain in our reading. Twice we read, in accordance with the scriptures. Again, in accordance with the scriptures. Now Paul is using that certainly with some passages specifically in mind, but, but perhaps more broadly, he's thinking of the whole Old Testament. All the scriptures are pointing to Christ dying for our sins. See, the problem we encounter from the very first page of the Bibles is, is a, it sounds like a silly one, but it's a real one. Where do we put our sin? Where, where do we put it? It's here. I see it. You feel it. We experience it. Where do we put it? Where does it go? Right? Like, like a stinky bag of garbage with, with, with no, no compactor anywhere. No, no, no outlet for it. What do we do with our sin? Where, where do we put it? And we, and we tried to answer that question a number of ways, right? We're quite creative. We've said, ignore it. What sin? Minimize it. That sin? Justify it. Not sin. Or put it on someone else. Their sin. But none of these things make sin go away. Ignoring evil doesn't actually make it an insignificant thing. Minimizing evil doesn't actually make it a small thing. Justifying evil never makes it a good thing. And while you can certainly be the victim of evil, it's never only someone else's thing. Evil and sin remain. And where we struggle or just willfully choose not to see it in all of its horror, God, we believe, sees sin in us 
and our world in all of its fullness. We see a sliver of the problem. We feel a sliver of the weight. God sees all of it, the totality of it. And God, the only one who sees our sin for what it truly is, makes a way for us to deal with our sin. Again, in Israel, we see that he gave them these animal sacrifices, a system to be performed on certain days for certain sins. But those were always pointing forward, pointing ahead. Yet from the first pages of the Bible, God's people have always looked forward to a day when one would come and deal with our sin once and for all. And so I want to read to you a lengthy piece of Scripture, but I want you to get caught up in it. See, the prophet Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, who is the Christ, this about a suffering servant who would come. We've already heard part of it this morning in our worship. Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Notice that. He for us. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah speaks, we hear, of a suffering servant, a king who would come and would free us in the most unlikely of ways. It's no wonder then that as Christ breathes his last breath, it says the earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were open, and darkness covered the whole land. Why? Because the judge of all the, all the earth, who always does what is just, had laid on Christ once and for all the sins of you and me, of us, of us. What does it mean, Christ City, to go deeper and deeper, to, to grow in the knowledge and the love and the joy that Christ died for our sins? Well, it means so much. But let's not miss what's right in front of us. 
Christ died to justify us before a holy God. Christ died to justify us before a holy God. Your death can't do it. Your work can't do it. Your self-improvement, your intellectual addition, your experience can't do it. To try to justify ourselves, give ourselves meaning and purpose by any of these things is not only, if you know this, you know this, an experience in futility, but an experience in misery. Again, to quote Ortland from that same book, he says this, all of this world's fraudulent pseudo-justifications are shiny on the outside, but only bring misery when attained. He says they are like baited fish hooks. When bit down on, they only bring pain. They are like baited fish hooks. When bit down on, they only bring pain. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is a truth we must go deeper and deeper and deeper into. We don't ever move past. Second, Paul says, Christ was buried. This is Christ's burial again at the end, sorry, at the beginning of verse 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Then Paul says that he was buried. He's buried. It, it may seem, as I first thought this week, that the addition of that he was buried is, is kind of superfluous, right? Right? People die, and then they're buried. That's obvious. It's what we assume. It's what happens in our culture. It's happened in Jesus' culture. It's always happened. People have been buried after they've died. The difference is, you and I are very well aware that we possess uh, fleshly material bodies. Right? We know the weakness of our bodies. We know that they've got to go somewhere, that they should go into a grave. But not everyone was convinced that Jesus had a real body. Not everyone thought he had a real body. And in fact, in the Greek conception of the day, the thought that deity would come and inhabit fleshly, dirty, muddy bodies was, was kind of abhorrent, kind of disgusting. You know, a few years back, we were all aghast to discover that Elon Musk, for one, you know, month, lived in a tiny home. <gasps> How could he? Right? He's a billionaire. Right? That, that's shocking. Like, multiply that by a thousand is sort of the, the, the shock and, and the confusion that would have been experienced in the Greco-Roman world. God does not come and dwell in body. It's an insuitable home, an unhospitable place. God doesn't live there. And that's what the Gospels tell us. So the, the heresy du jour, or the false teaching believed by many in Paul's day, was that Jesus, Jesus only seemed to have a body. He only seemed to be crucified. Only seemed to be buried. The true Jesus is the resurrected, glorious, right, angelic Jesus not this earthly one. And even today, if you speak with, with Muslims about Jesus, they will deny that Jesus died and was buried. That, that wasn't Jesus on the cross, they say. It was somebody else. Some other poor chap who got put there in Jesus' place. They deny this. And Paul, and, and the overwhelming testimony of the early church is to say, no, 
He was buried. He really died. Now, now we're going to see in the coming weeks how this truth sets us up for the glory of what Paul wants to say about the resurrection. But we should not miss past the implications of the simple truth that Christ was, was buried. See, one day you too will also die. I know we're generally a, a youngish crowd, so we don't think about that, but you too will one day die. And as you're lying on your deathbed, you will wonder, am I going somewhere where Jesus hasn't been? Am I going somewhere that is far away even from God? Am I going to a darkness in which Jesus himself hasn't even experienced? And the Bible says no. 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 As we lay on our deathbeds, which we all will should Christ delay his return, as we lay on our deathbeds, Jesus whispers to us by his spirit, I've been there and back again. I've been where you're going, and it's not the end of the story. I've tasted the fullness of death so that I could bring you resurrection life. See, when in Psalm 23, David famously writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David is talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus with us. Jesus walking before us. Jesus making a way for us. We can have hope in the face of the valley of the shadow of death that Jesus walked in that valley before us to save us from it. And so when darkness closes around us today, as it is prone to do, only Christians can say, only Christians, our God was buried. He was buried. He was buried. He alone can sympathize with us. He alone has made a way through the grave for us. But, but a burial is no good on its own. There's nothing unique about a teacher or a holy man who was buried. Those are a dime a dozen. But the body of Jesus will never be found, at least not by looking in the ground. Third point. Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection. Paul comes to the climax, the crescendo of this gospel of first importance. And he's going to mention uh, for the first time an article of faith. He'll spend the rest of chapter 15 unpacking. Again, this time, all of verse 4. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, and now third point, third article of faith that we have to hold on to, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Christians believe, they have to believe, in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a central tenet of our faith. There is no Christianity outside of it. See, the next three months are essentially about fleshing out the implications of this resurrection. But today, the emphasis on our text is, is actually quite simple. Amazingly simple. Wonderfully simple. Our God, the resurrection proclaims, is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. Notice once more the appearance of in accordance with the Scriptures. 
See, see, Jesus taught his disciples, including us, to read the whole Bible in light of him, in view of him, through, through his lens. The Old Testament, Jesus had the audacity to say, is all about me. It's about me. It's all about me. After his resurrection, in conversation with his disciples in Luke 24, he will say this to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We need Jesus to open our minds to understand the scriptures. And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So, here's what we have to do. This is a good Bible reading practice. Armed with the interpretive key of Jesus, we now have eyes to see, in fact, we must have eyes to see, that, that just as the prophet Jonah, do you remember that story? It was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And just as the Lord said through the prophet Hosea, that on the third day he will raise Israel up out of judgment, so too do we see this as pointing forward to God, who would on the third day raise his son up. And when David prays in Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption, Peter tells us in Acts 2 that he was actually speaking about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In accordance with God's long-made promise, God was faithful. God is the hero. God is the one doing everything. And don't miss how in our text, it's God who's doing everything. Look, Jesus was raised. Our text does not say Jesus raised himself up or Jesus pulled himself up from his bootstraps out of the grave. It says Jesus was raised. He was raised. That is, Jesus did not raise himself. God raised him. How? The Bible tells us, by his Holy Spirit. So God is faithful to his promises. He accomplishes what he says he will. This was true for Jesus and upon Jesus, which also means that in Jesus, it's true for us. I want us to show us something in Romans 8. Romans 8. Listen to the logic that Paul employs as he speaks to the church in Rome about their new life in the Spirit. He wants to say this, okay? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, notice again, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So how can you know that you will experience new resurrection life? Because Jesus is alive. That's how you can know that the same Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead is also at work in us, raising us from the dead, taking us out of the dead, and one day in full at the return of Christ. The same Spirit will raise our mortal bodies, Paul says. He dwells in us. He's doing that work in us. So I just want to ask this morning. Next time you sin, 
Will you ask, what must I do? Or, what has God already done? Who am I already? What do I need to grasp of what has already been accomplished for me? God is the hero. God is the one doing things. God is the center of the story. And the clearer we see that, the deeper we'll go. God kept his promise and raised Jesus, who is the Christ, on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You better believe we're going to go deeper here. Last point. Christ's appearing. Christ's appearing. The creed concludes. Look with me. Verses 5 to 7. And that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Why should you spend your whole life trusting in and going deeper into the gospel of Jesus? I mean, the simple answer this morning is because it's true. Because it's true. And the truthfulness of this good news is precisely the point that Paul is making with this last article about Christ appearing, right? The resurrected Jesus did not hide himself. He did not go straight from resurrection to ascension. No, he appeared first to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared, Paul says, to more than 500 brothers at one time. And Paul adds, if you don't believe it, while some of these people have died, a.k.a. fallen asleep, most of them are still alive. So go ask them. Go, go talk to them. They've seen the resurrected Jesus. See, Paul's point is persuasive then, and I actually think it's persuasive now. So let me just lay out like a really quick apologetic, a defense of the resurrection of Jesus. First, while some have critiqued the Gospels for containing different lists of eyewitnesses, different names of people of these eyewitnesses, the issue is easily resolved, as Richard Bauckham does in his great book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. The issue is easily resolved when you realize that the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all naming the eyewitnesses that they know personally. That they know personally, that they've talked with these people, which makes the list of the eyewitnesses in the gospel not a liability, but in fact a larger list than you initially thought. And, and speaking about differences in the gospels, though Jewish law preferred three witnesses, Matthew includes two. And the two that Matthew includes are women, which to you and me is fine, to be expected, nothing crazy. But in Jesus' day, the testimony of women was not deemed credible. And so uh, one theologian, Rebecca McLaughlin, she writes this. There is no way that gospel writers would have chosen women as key witnesses in a fabricated story. Right? It'd be men, at least three, preferably more. That would be like resting, she says, a vital legal claim on the testimony of a few kids. Again, What's more, I don't know if you've read the Gospels, I'd encourage you to read them, but they don't make the disciples look particularly good, do they? Peter rejects Jesus. Thomas doubts Jesus. James and John treat Jesus like their personal genie. They look like bumbling fools. 
If the Gospels were faked, designed to propagate a lie, you would have thought the disciples would have taken an airbrush to themselves. But it's true. And so what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say is that I can understand you leaving here today not believing in Jesus because you actually like the way you live and you don't want to change that. And, and I can understand, though it would break my heart, if you left here today not believing in Jesus because you're afraid of what giving your life over to him might mean. But, but you actually can't leave today with the thought in your head that, that science and history and every other observable fact have proven the resurrection untrue. You can't. In fact, I can point you to a number of scientists and historians and archaeologists and other academics who all feel their work in their field only bolsters their faith in Christ. No, Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death. And in his hands, we see in Revelation 1.18, he holds the keys to life. This is the good news. And this is news not only worth staking your life upon, but worth joyously going deeper into as long as you live. And so I end with this illustration. Uh, there is this scene in, in Prince Caspian. It's a novel in the, the Chronicles of Narnia series where, where one of the characters, Lucy, uh, finds herself in conversation with Aslan. He's the lion who acts as sort of the G Jesus figure in, in Lewis's allegory. And we read this in that scene. It'll be on the screen behind me. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Well, that is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? Aslan says this, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Friends, we don't ever move past the gospel. We don't ever move beyond Jesus. And we'd be helped in the face of big, big screw-ups to not ask first, what must I do? But rather, what has God already done for me in Jesus Christ? This must be us. And may it be true of us. May we find Jesus, who is the Christ, bigger and bigger every year as we go deeper and deeper into all that we've already received. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I feel uh, like somebody uh, water skiing on the surface of an ocean. Like, like I've, I've just only touched and explored and, and spoken a little bit of who you are. Lord, we want to know each of these things. Your death, your burial, your resurrection, your appearing. We want to know all of these things for us for every day of our life. So Lord, forgive us for when we in our sin have turned immediately to our inner legalists and tried to justify ourselves. Jesus, we come this morning with, with arms wide open to receive what you have for us, knowing that's because of the work that you've done. God, because of your initiative that we stand here at all. And so come, we pray. Fill us with your spirit. Lead us and guide us. And take us deeper into the ocean of who you are. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.